Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, speaks with Uniqlo creative director, John C.J. I also had the pleasure to speak with Russian journalist, Yevgenia Albats. And James Mullinger is back with the Maritime Edit. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in Zurich, where Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, caught up with one of the most creative minds out there, John C.J., president of Global Creative at Fast Retailing and responsible for Uniqlo's incredible art collaborations. They spoke about print and many other pressing topics. John, fantastic having you here in Zurich with us. A lot of things to cover. And, and maybe before we talk about uh, one or two projects, I would just like your reflection, your view, uh, your almost expert analysis. Coming out of two years where our media consumption has been very different, been very defined in certain channels. In some parts of the world, people have been exposed out of home. Uh, you know, I've been sort of traveling through airports and, and just being in a different almost orbit and and seeing different executions uh, and, and maybe also really sort of understanding what works or, or where our eye travels again. And I'm wondering how you see this reopened world at the moment and what it means, your work across you know, a variety of creative fields, but what it means in terms of creative expression. Well, Tyler, first of all, it's, uh, it's fantastic to be here with you on your home turf. Uh, we've had a lot of gatherings from Portland, Oregon to Japan and other places, but it's great to be here at uh, one of your homes here. Interesting term you use, how your eye travels. A very famous term, Diana Vreeland, David Bailey, about how your eye travels across a printed page and how you tell stories through typography and pictures. And uh, that's a very important term to me. I happen to live in Tokyo, Portland, Oregon, and New York. I live and work. I have offices in all three, pre-COVID. I've not been in Japan in almost two years. So it's been a shock for me for not to be in Asia. But now I'm opening up again. Now I'm here in Zurich. And now I'm you know, traveling again. And I'm looking forward to my first trip back to Asia very soon. However, while there has been massive change in the media landscape, of course, and certain countless meetings on digital, of course, that we wouldn't survive, the businesses would not survive without digital media, it has also made me very hungry for the tactile and for messages that I actually can turn the page. And most recently, as COVID began to settle down in New York City, and as I became more comfortable in gathering my staff back into the office again, uh, one of the jokes is that John's answer to everything is a magazine, is print for everything. In fact, if you remember when I was at my former place at Wyden Kennedy and I had a monthly inspiration talk, you were one of my first guests to bring the magazine and talk about the makeup of Monocle and so forth. So for me, I think the messaging, uh, there's a need for the tactile, a need for personal connections again. I love being able to connect all over the world and see 20 faces on a screen, but the working process of being next to the people and being able to share things and show and draw on tissue paper in front of each other and mount it on the wall. Uh, one of the great projects I just finished a few months ago was a magazine on the celebration of Soho. And... Uh, 
while I'm proud of the magazine, the process of making it was probably the most important thing. To stand next to creative people and to editors and writers and so forth and look at a giant wall and paginate and design the message and talk about the arc of the story, the arc of the magazine. When is it peak? How do you bring it down? You know, and so forth, visually and word-wise. And I think that that part can't be lost. I mean, I uh, one of the things I happened to have opened a very big library in our headquarters in Tokyo. That was the first step I did was to put a, a creative library inside. Uh, from zero to 2,000 copies of books uh, overnight. And in that process, I discovered just how much people were missing the printed word and the ability to sit down and read something in their hands. And so digital is very important. I also have a digital space as well in, 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 in the library. But there's something about writing things. by, And I, this is something I do a lot. I write a lot of things by hand now. Because the making is thinking at the same time. As you are writing, it's a process, it's a way of thinking. So I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but it is there. I am drawn greatly to the tactile things, to being able to touch things, to be able to write things. Even in my very personal meetings with the founder of Uniqlo, uh, when I go in and I have a half an hour by myself and I can talk about anything I want, many times my notes are all handwritten and presented to him in a handwritten form just for the sake of personality and of personalization of so forth. And there's no secret that um, people like you and other people, very famous editors in fashion, have kept the note card and the handwritten note as a tradition uh, that's very much alive and so forth. So we, we are here uh, uh, working in, in your fabulous cafe with Roger Federer, and the message I just got from him was a handwritten note before coming here. So uh, I think that media, while there are many, many choices, I think um, one of the concerns I would have is while uh, the Internet has allowed us and encouraged us to dig very deep into subject matter, sometimes it's not allowing us to broaden our knowledge and broaden our visit, you know, our what we're interested in. So we become experts at many things, but... I think being a generalist in culture is still very, very important. Now, tell me, when we look at, or, or are we facing a period where the amplification is going to be you know, dialed up, dialed down, when we look at how a company like Uniqlo chooses to tell its message right now? So whether I think about cinema, uh, whether I think about what can happen in public transport with out of home, whether I think about audio, is that something that you're reconsidering? And, and we talk about sort of, you know, the traveling eye, but of course it's the traveling ear. It's that sense of touch, et cetera. So do you see a bit of a restacking that also has to happen now? Yes, but I also think I have, we have an, an additional challenge. We are from Japan and we are very humble as a company. We don't do a lot of hype, quite frankly. Someone said to me, um, in your previous life, John, you were expert, you were very good, your job was hype generation, hype engineering. And now what I'm doing is value engineering, making sure that there's quality that's available, accessible for the greatest number of people. So I think the volume that you're talking about, there are times when I will have disagreements with my management because I think the volume needs to pick up. I appreciate the humbleness. I appreciate, you know, the, the subtlety of the culture and so forth. But sometimes they're not going to understand the truth of the story if you don't tell the story loud enough or well enough or often enough. 
So, and of course, you've spent decades in Japan, as, as have I, and, and we understand many aspects of the culture quite intimately, or, or certainly from a communications point of view. Is there a value, though, in sometimes saying less? That notion of, of mystery uh, when we talk about absolutely shadows as well. Absolutely, is, is that also an advantage in today's world of always being on? Absolutely. And so, well, I may I'll come back against what I just said about uh, about generating you know more volume and so forth. There is a, obviously a sophistication, a certain almost novelty in being quiet and being more. And of course, you know we have a famous uh, phrase: simple made better. And I think that not only goes into our clothing and our product, but maybe hopefully through our communications too. There's an art form to that and how to say things in less, you know, in, in a less volume, less words and, and so forth. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful uh, way of, of learning how to communicate. And I think being from Japan in particular, it's an art form. Being a, a, a master communicator as you are are you worried when we look at some media outlets? So, for example, I was in Los Angeles a few weeks ago, was talking to a major company, and they said, we're looking at multiple streams right now, and and one of our premium streams will be a, a stream without advertising. And I said, what's premium about that? Because I said, you know, if I think about our magazine, if I think about whatever it may be, if I think about just you know a really great television program, and when you go to a commercial break, if the commercials are great... Well, then you do want to stick around. And I thought, I, I said, I don't see divorcing yourself from the art. And it really is an art of selling. Why is that premium? Well, you know, people don't like the invasion. They don't like the distraction, et cetera. But yeah, but if the distractions are bad, well, of course they don't. But if it's a celebration and we think about, I would say it's probably today, it's still the world of print where you have just exquisite execution. And, and this is not to sort of to denigrate television or anything else. But why have we ended up in this place? And do you think it's also dangerous for you know the future of agencies and everything else when suddenly we're we're all about sort of chasing audience and and somehow I'll, I'll get you to pay more just so you don't have to look at other creativity? Well, let's be honest here. How much good content is there really that we're accusing advertising of interrupting? I mean, it plays both ways. You know, it plays both ways. So is there bad advertising and that, that is a noise? Of course there is. Is there bad television and bad film on screens? Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I think that, uh, well, first of all, your question hits me really hard because you have to understand something. I learned to speak English by watching television commercials when I was a kid. I didn't speak English until I was five and a half or six. And I learned by watching car commercials. And that was my first experience of, I didn't know what branding was, but I did go out into the streets in America and said, oh my God, that's a Chevrolet, that's a Ford, that's a Chrysler. So advertising is how I learned how to speak English, quite frankly. Um, so there's a, there's a sense of a respect that I have for that form. Now, um, I also have the great luxury of having worked at one of the great advertising agencies in the world at White and Kennedy. So uh, we took great pride in the, the work that we did. So we did think, quite honestly, that it was always more than just selling, that there was some value, that we had to put value in that content in the, in the commercials and so forth. And I do think that everyone is looking, you know, overused word, but authenticity. We hear that for everything. There's a truth in that, you know, in terms of um, what is your voice? And, and I think in advertising, uh, I'll tell you a story, uh, the iconic Dan Wyden, the founder of Wyden & Kennedy, who created Just Do It, 
said he used to put the athlete's picture on the wall, sit down with a typewriter in front of the picture, and speak to that photograph. And that's how the conversation, that's how the voice of Nike was created. So the long-distance runner, laissez-faire, he would tape his picture on the wall, and he would type, he would write and speak to him and listen to him speak back. And that's how he created the voice. And so this idea of having a quality conversation through advertising is something that can be done and should be done. Just before we go, if you were, and you are running, of course, the creative engine behind one of the world's great retail brands, but you know, maybe we could be talking to someone who's listening who's running an airline. They might be starting an agency right now. They might be running policy and government. When you think about communications and creativity and where people need to put power today, if you said, where is the energy going to be? Is it in the COO's office? Is it out on the campuses? What's the focus? What's the most important department in your mind? Wow. Well, I'm not trying to avoid your your question here, but the answer has to be everywhere. You know, if there's no leadership and inspiration at the CEO's office, then it's it's meaningless, quite frankly. It's ideal when there's magic at the top, and then and we can all feed off of that. But on the other hand, many CEOs around the world, and this is something I know that you're working on very well, are out of touch, quite frankly. And when you mention the college campuses, or even less than that, in, in, you know, we're talking about teenagers in the streets, you know, in the urban cities and so forth, they're out of touch. They're totally out of touch. And so being in touch and listening to those stories is so important. Listening to the stories of young people is so important. And having, again, having that ability to have an understanding of what they're going through in their lives and, and so forth, what's relevant to them. The question is, what is relevant today? What is relevant to that particular audience? That's what the CEO has to understand. And that's what all of us in communications have to understand. It's about relevance. And I was saying, finally, we just need to talk about talent as well. There is a global redeployment going on. We see the traditional centers of creativity have shifted. We were talking earlier, Portland's going through a tough time. San Francisco is going through a tough time. London has complications because of Brexit, bringing people in from the EU. There's this great reshuffling going on. So if I'm looking, if I'm thinking about talent as well, Again, is that the studio floor? Is it whatever we want to call it, HR, people and talent? Where should the focus be uh, in, in your mind? Well, again, you know, I, I said earlier that I think today in any contemporary company, a modern global brand, I think the HR, what we used to call the HR department, is probably the most vital department in the company right now. Some people would say it's IT because it's technology. I say it's people. How do you attract and nurture the greatest number of people? Remember, my definition of a manager or a director or a boss is always your first job is to inspire those around you. And only those companies that can create that kind of internal inspiration can keep people and attract the best people. There is a huge change in talent right now, not just because of technology, but there's a whole middle range of people who have lots of years of experience who are reinventing themselves reinventing it because the agencies can't keep them there. They want to do something more than the typical advertising routine. So they're doing publishing, they're doing podcasts, they're doing other things. So there's a, a real explosion in talent and people with experience looking for new avenues, new ways for self-expression. John Jay, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you very much, John and Tyler.
We head to Russia now, where I had the pleasure to speak with renowned investigative journalist Yevgenia Albats. A critic of Putin, she bravely decided to stay in the country, even with all the restrictions against journalists. Let's hear from Yevgenia. Yevgenia Albats, first of all, welcome uh, to Monaco 24. Very difficult times to be a journalist in Russia at the moment. First of all, I've read that you say that you decided to stay but many of your colleagues, they have fled Russia, right? First of all, thank you very much for having me. Secondary people do the, uh, take their own choices. Some people chose to leave. Some people chose to go and work in Ukraine at the front lines. You know, my friend, a colleague from Novaya Gazeta, Yelena Kostyuchenko, is reporting now from Nikolaev. My another colleague, Yaparova from Medusa, she reported from Kiev. So people are taking different choices. Unfortunately, because of my knee surgery, I couldn't go to Ukraine. So I work out of Moscow. And I want to ask, before we talk about how is it to be a journalist right now, tell us a bit more, some of our listeners who perhaps don't know the New Times, which is, you know, it's a very influential kind of icon of, you know, liberal media in Russia, right? And, and you're responsible for it. You know, I carry three hats at once. I'm the editor of the New Times, I'm the, its CEO, and unfortunately, I'm its owner. It was a very a pretty decent uh, political weekly. It was it used to come out on paper until in June of 2017, all our distribution was concealed by the state and printing houses, even though they were private ones, they refused to publish the magazine. So we had to go digital only. In 2018, the New Times was fined, the biggest fine in the history of the Russian media, 23 million rubles. We managed to raise this money via web. 18,000 readers, supporters of the New Times, sent us a check. The mean check was less than $10. And we managed to raise this money in a matter of 96 hours. We paid the fine, and we basically went bankrupt. A year ago, the European Court of Justice in Strasbourg communicated our complaint. Well, of course, you know, we went through all the courts in the Russian Federation. Of course, you know, judiciary no longer, and, you know, justice no longer exists in the Russian Federation. So went all the way to the European Court of Justice, and we were supposed to, as far as according to my lawyers, we were about to win the case. But three or four days ago, Russia was kicked out of the Council of Europe and of all European organizations, and now European Court of Justice is off limits for Russians uh, either. So that's the story. How are you able to communicate your message now with so many restrictions? It must be incredibly hard. No, I wouldn't exaggerate that. It's still not a Soviet Union. It's not nice. It's not easy. But you do what you have to do. And, uh, you know, we publish news and opinions on the website. 
I also do twice a week. I do my shows via YouTube. I used to do a show, a talk show at the Free Willing Broadcasting, Echo Moskvi. However, Echo Moskvi got closed two weeks ago by the state. It was shut down. It was taken off the air. It had the daily audience of one million listeners in Moscow alone and unknown amount of listeners all across the country. I did my show, it was called Absolute Alberts, for 19 consecutive years, each Monday at 8 p.m. Moscow. So it was shut down. So I moved my show to YouTube. And also on Fridays late in the evening, I do... Uh, you know, the sort of, you know, the, the end of the week show, telling my readers what's going on and my listeners. So that's what the, I do. I don't know how long I will be able to do it. I don't know how long I will be able to stay here yeah, as well. To be sure, Fernanda, I don't want to be seen or taken as a martyr. I'm not. You know, in fact, just recently, we were witnesses of, of amazing courage by Marina Avsyannikova, an editor of, of the Channel One. That was the really incredibly significant act of defense. Just to give you a context, Russia has, I believe, four or five major television networks which are capable uh, to cover the majority of households uh, across all Russian 11 time zones. Russia is the biggest, geographically, is the biggest country on earth. So Avsyannikova conducted her protest at the state's preeminent propaganda channel during primetime news. And it was likely seen by millions of people. Of course, you know, afterwards, Avsyanikova was detained, denied legal counsel, was missing for several hours. Then she was fined with 30,000 rubles. And now there is, a, you know, the procurator general, you know, the punitive organs are looking, are probing a criminal case against her. She has two children and... Obviously, you know, she had a good salary at the state propaganda channel one. She will never work in media again, obviously in the state media again. She's going to lose her salary and it's going to be pretty harsh on her. So that's a real courage. And, you know, especially for somebody who never was in any opposition circles or in any dissident circles, you know, and she was totally alone in this crowd of uh, Putin's lovers and supporters. You mentioned she was alone, but do you think what she did, do you think there will be more of those coming in the next weeks in Russia from people that even working in state media and like you, which was always kind of, kind of a free thinking in a way? Listen, I'm not in the business of guessing. I don't know how to read the crystal ball. I think that you know, these kind of acts, they are rare. They are rare because it takes courage and it takes, you know, some internal conviction 
you know, Marina Avsenikova, as I said, she never was part of the opposition. She never uh, went to any opposition rallies. She never was one of the Navalny supporters or any opposition leaders. You know, it was a courageous, single person protest. And that's especially difficult. I know this. It's especially difficult when you do it on your own. And she had to pass the police, which controls entrance to the newsroom uh, from which anchors go live. She entered this newsroom and she did all that. And, you know, God, you know, it was absolutely amazing act. Uh, listen, Evgenia, pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for talking to us here at Monaco 24. Thank you. Thank you very much, Evgenia Arpats there. And finally on the show, we welcome back a good friend of the stack, James Mullinger from the Maritime Edit, about the wonders of Atlantic Canada. I caught up with him about his latest exciting projects. The, um, the five years obviously gone extremely quickly, although that said, I mean, like a lot of print magazine launches or indeed media brands that start as print titles, you never know how far you're going to be able to go with it. And, and to be honest, I mean, for us, this project, it was born out of a love for Atlantic Canada, but really we didn't know if it was going to go past issue one. So we were, the, the mission when we were working on it from 2016 to 2017 was at least if we can get one of these made, then we can, you know, show our kids and say, in years to come look we made this beautiful thing about this region of Canada that we chose to to move to and that we love so much so the fact that we've now kind of hit the the 20 issue milestone and indeed hitting five years is uh, is both a joy a surprise and uh, something which we'll definitely be celebrating I have to say from the beginning I could see your passion from that area of Canada and on the on your editor's letter of the new issue 20 you became a Canadian citizen yourself. So that now, I think that's such a special moment for you, right? And even the kind of writing a magazine, which is about Canada in a way. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it makes everything feel very official. You know, I mean, I've been here eight years. I've made this place my home. I knew that I loved the country as a place that I wanted to come and visit, you know, once or twice a year or sometimes more for work. But but it was always my happy place. So, yeah, to have been here for eight years and kind of found, you know, elements of success here but also been able to kind of share my love of it with the rest of the world and this is one of the things that's been so lovely about creating a, a magazine about this place is that it's led me to kind of have situations where I'll like come back to England and do shows for Destination Canada at the Canadian Embassy in London where really you know for all those years talking about how much I love this place to now be able to call myself and I still can't get used to it I still when I'm introducing myself hi I'm uh, British and I'm like oh and Canadian it's still surprising me and it's still bringing me uh, me much joy and and again it's it's nice when you um when you can feel so proud of something, which, uh, you know, again, I, I was proud just to be able to, or I felt lucky enough just to be able to live in this country, but now to, to know that know that they can't kick me out is a, is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing indeed. And uh, tell us about Issue 20. You know, I, I had a, a look amazing as usual, very consistent, one thing I have to say as well, by the time I added, I think every single issue is very interesting. I particularly like the story about the National Hockey League player, Willie O'Ree, because... You know, I'm not a big expert on hockey, but what, what an interesting profile on him. 
Oh, well, thank you. And it's, it's, it's so nice to hear that because, I mean, as you know, I mean, that was always the, the, the remit and the mantra for the magazine from the day one was to tell stories that weren't being told about, you know, this region, but also about all great Canadians. And, and Willie O'Ree is just one of those incredible success stories where, you know, grew up in Fredericton, which is the capital city of New Brunswick, but it's still a very small city by comparison to anywhere else. And he became the NHL's first black player when he was uh, called to play for the Boston Bruins. And then just a few weeks ago, Joe Biden uh, awarded him the Congressional Gold Medal, which is the highest civilian honor the US government can bestow on a citizen. So he is someone who here within New Brunswick, in Canada, everyone kind of knows and is very proud of. And of course, he's known in the hockey world. But it's a story that we wanted to kind of you know tell and we secured an exclusive interview with him ahead of that. And really that issue, and I love, I love hearing it when you say, and it means so much coming from you, because you know how much I love this show and, and the stack has been our kind of our audio Bible uh, ever since launch. So um, always keeps us inspired. And I guess with regards to the consistency, I mean, certainly in terms of the design, we've been very lucky to have the same art director, uh, Lindsay Voteur, for every issue. And uh, I, I think quite uniquely for any magazine, she designs every page of it. She has designed every page of every issue of all 20. And, you know, and she's constantly kind of reinventing it, constantly redesigning it, but always has the, essentially her, her brain is a, is, a, is a flat plan, you know, and she constantly has the entire flat plan of the issue in her head. But one of the things that I think you and I've talked about before about how we always wanted to tell stories that weren't being told, which in a lot of cases is the positive because there was a tendency within this part of Canada occasionally to, um, in the past, for media outlets to want to focus on less positive things. So when we launched, there was a huge part of it wanting to say, here are some exciting things that are happening. But equally, we've never wanted to shy away from important issues either. So, you know, I mean, a few issues back, one of my favourite issues we've, features we've ever done was the Ingrid Waldron feature on uh, environmental racism in Nova Scotia and similarly in this issue we've launched the first in a series of um, investigations into the mental health crisis that is of course I mean facing countries globally specifically in this region it is something which has, has really obviously come to the forefront in the last two years but doesn't get talked about enough so we've uh, we've kind of taken that on as something where you know and I don't feel like it's a shift because like I say the, the, the brief was always tell stories that weren't being told so it might be that that story is the insight into a, a, a beautiful resort on the south shore of Nova Scotia, which people uh, within the region know, but people globally don't. But equally, it could be us kind of shining a light on a, on a serious issue like environmental racism or indeed mental health awareness. And tell us a bit about the, the TV spin-off, because I think we also have a season two now, which is amazing. And I have to say, I think your voice is perfect for TV. You're, you're a great editor, but I think you, you're also good kind of on TV. Well, that's very kind. And I take that as a huge compliment coming from you, because you have the most beautiful voice. And I love, which is why, which is why your voice is coming out of every speaker in the house so often. So uh, that means a lot coming from you. And it's, um, it, it's a really, really lovely thing. And again, it's one of the fortuitous things with COVID. And again, people have shied away from wanting to talk about positive things through it. But we're all aware of the, the negative effects of what has happened. But the reality was, was that, you know, with my other job as a comedian, I was on the road so much that suddenly being at home with COVID meant that we were able to focus on projects that had been talked about, but were somewhat on the back burner. So it, it meant that, you know, essentially the brand, the edit media brand grew kind of exponentially, certainly in 2020 and went from being a print title to, um, first of all, that the TV show started to be developed, which we filmed the first season in 2020 and just completed uh, the second season, which is, which 
which is airing now on Bell 5 TV1 across Canada. And again, it's one of the first shows to be produced within this region and, and air nationally, which again gives us an enormous sense of pride. We launched a, a bi-weekly digital magazine. We launched a podcast and really being able to interview people I mean, again, this is, I guess, one of the reasons we were able to grow so much was this region typically was very underpopulated. And once COVID hit and people started seeing their lives differently or realized they could be based remotely or indeed wanting a kind of more rural lifestyle, so many people began moving here that, again, that became a huge new audience for us of people. I mean, just on my street alone, there's people that have moved from New York, from Calgary. We've got three couples from London. And again, so suddenly a whole new readership who want to know about this region and there's only one place to kind of find that out and, and that's in the magazine but then also there's amazing people coming here so the godfather of canadian hip-hop maestro fresh west a colleague of of chuck d i mean you know he, he literally one of the one of the pioneers of canadian hip-hop and indeed north american hip-hop um moved uh, from ontario to saint john new brunswick uh, last year and here's one of the guests on our on the second season of atlantic edition and he's uh, possibly the only person i know who loves saint john new brunswick even more more than I do. I mean, he, he has become, he is essentially the mayor now. He's, in addition to being the godfather of Canadian hip hop, he's also the mayor of, of St. John New Brunswick. And it's a wonderful thing to see celebrating both people like that coming here, but also, you know, uh, performers like uh, Misha Booger Gossman Lee and the, the rapper Classified, who are both from the Maritimes and have stayed here. And really, you know, the great thing with the show is, likewise with the magazine, when I might go and spend a day with people and come away with a kind of a hopefully scintillating, you know, 4,000 word feature now we go and spend the day but there's a you know a 12 strong camera crew there to capture where they are and how they live in, in all its beauty so it's fascinating i know when you monica you've been doing this for years where you have people that people that consume everything you do and then you have people that discover you through different mediums and that's something which we've which we've found of huge benefit where someone that discovers the tv show through the magazine or vice versa and season two is out now already? Or? Yes, so it's actually airing right now. So I believe the first five episodes uh, have aired on Bell 5 TV 1. And then the, the remaining four, I believe, are coming in the next four weeks. So it's been um, it's been really exciting seeing, as I say, the reactions. And again, I mean, you know, Canadians are intrinsically welcoming, of course, but they also have this, you know, this, this sense of pride. And I think, I mean, certainly the amount of the outpouring of kind of emotion when I when I became Canadian, not just for myself, but but from other people it's been um you know a wonderful thing to kind of experience and and, and see and James, just out of curiosity their region in canada atlantic mm -hmm. canada do they have any kind of stereotypes that what, what other canadians think of atlantic canada i'm curious about that very good question and it's funny i mean basically my entire comedy act basically became uh, about that and to be perfectly honest for many years the reputation was that it was slightly backwards here that was that was the perception of the rest of the country often not in in an offensive way necessarily but it was underpopulated it was rural there was an assumption that there is not much to do here and for us when we moved here and we moved here primarily for quality of life we wanted to live in in a rural place with a sense of community but it was such a great surprise for us to come here and discover that there was a, a, a thriving you know arts and culture scene beautiful theatres, you know, world-class resorts. All of those things was a surprise to us. So we couldn't understand why the rest of Canada didn't know that. So really, as the, the brand has grown, that was really our, our mission, was, was, was to show those things to people. And it really has been a, an eye-opener for a lot of people. I mean, we host events sometimes in, in, in Toronto when we launch new issues. And again, I mean, people make no bones about the fact that they are surprised. I mean, 
they're surprised that all of these things exist here. They're surprised that we moved here. And that tide is turning and there, and there is definitely a shift happening. But for many years, I think that was the assumption was that it was it was a kind of a desolate wasteland where nothing happened or, you know, New Brunswick often would get called uh, the drive-through province where people would essentially just drive through it to get to Nova Scotia or, or Prince Edward Island. But luckily that's changing. And it's um and, and to your point, I mean, it's, it's essentially stereotypes in much the same way, you know, every country has to, you know, there's stereotypes about Texas and and so many beautiful things there and so he talks about Liverpool and yet it's this thriving cultural scene but yet um, it changes but again I think thanks to those stereotypes that's what we were able to kind of build the magazine off and, and, and shatter those conceptions that people had Well that's it for this week's show my thanks to our editor Nora Hall if you have any comments or queries feel free to write to me Fernando at fpandmonaco.com and remember we're back next Saturday at the same time And of course, you can always listen to it again at monocle.com or subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Cut copy with Free Your Mind. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. 